You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Ever since we dispensed with God, we've got nothing but ourselves to explain this meaningless horror of life. You're wacko. Well, I think that that true self, that original self, that first self is a real, mensurate, quantifiable thing, tangible and incarnate. <laughs> and I'm going to find the fucker. Space, time, mind, mind, space, time, space, time. Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. Welcome, everybody, to Space Time Mind. This is a very special event for us. Besides the usual uh, characters, Pete Mandick and Richard Brown, we're joined by uh, neuroscientist Bernard J. Bars. Bernie, welcome to SpaceTimeMind.com. Thanks for being on with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Bernard J. Bars is affiliated with the uh, Neurosciences Institute in San Diego, California. If you have anything to do with uh, consciousness research, there's, there's no doubt you've come across Bars' work, especially in connection with the global workspace theory of consciousness. And hopefully we'll get you to talk about that a whole bunch with us today. You've got a, a, book, a book about this that, that uh, people should check out, right? The 90, 1997 book? That's the uh, general audience version, yes. That's okay. the most readable one. And then yeah. recently, uh, Bernie's been venturing into the blogosphere, right? You recently started the, your Conscious Brain blog. Yes. I, I thought that uh, the Conscious Brain it would be so shocking to so many people, uh, including in philosophy as well as psychology, that uh, that's probably the most interesting title. Now, uh, Richard and I are not shocked by conscious brains. No. <laughs> you, you are the uh, unshockable generation. Yeah, we like conscious brains. Um, I think we might even be conscious brains. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> and uh, maybe, uh, you know, one thing we'll get you to talk about is uh, a recent-ish paper that you co-authored with David uh, Edelman about um, this quantum stuff. You you guys are are debunking the the uh, the, the quantum people people right. who think you need to explain consciousness in terms of really low level physical phenomena and uh, and you you and David are arguing that the scientific study of consciousness should appropriately be conducted at a relatively high level uh, involving networks of billions of neurons instead of uh, things going on in the microtubules. Of individual neurons. That is one way of, of saying it. Um, uh, chemical processes in the brain take place, show quantum phenomena, just as you would expect them to. The issue is uh, whether um, 
quantum phenomena uh, are explanatory with respect to consciousness. Right. Uh, there are parts of the brain that support conscious experiences, and there are parts of the brain that are very well known not to support conscious experiences. Both parts of the brain have neurons. They all have microtubules. Yeah. In fact, uh, plants have microtubules that have similar proteins to the ones in neurons. Uh, so it's not that there's anything wrong with microtubules. They're very interesting, very important. Uh, the key question is whether it explains anything about consciousness. Yeah. That case has not been even attempted to be made as far as I can tell. So the evidence isn't there in science. Uh, the burden of proof is on the proposer, uh, and that burden of proof has not been met. So, so Bernie, can I ask you about this? Um, and I, I, so I, I think I'm on your side with respect to these questions, but uh, you know, I, I'm not sure because the way I read like Stu's work, um, a lot Stuart, of a lot of Stuart Hammerhop. Hammerhop. Yeah, exactly. A lot of. Um, uh, and I met him recently at the Association for the Scientific Study of Consciousness meeting, which was in San Diego, and um, talked to him briefly about this stuff. And you know, I'm not, I'm not convinced by it, but I think it's interesting to think about. So I wonder, do do you? Th it's not that you're against quantum. I mean, obviously, what you were saying makes a lot of sense. That uh, quantum phenomenon occur in the brain all over the place, um, uh, because you know, the quantum mechanical nature of reality is, to some extent. Um, uh, vindicated by science and so that's got to be going on in the brain at some level you're just disputing the claim whether those quantum phenomenon are relevant explanatorily to understanding um, how the mind works that's really where you're right 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 um, so but so so you think it could be in principle be the case that quantum computations um, turn out to be explanatory like for maybe Maybe quantum computations uh, enable a global broadcast or a, um, a global workspace. If that could, in principle, turn out right, you're just claiming the evidence isn't in yet. Uh, it's uh, it's a potential hypothesis. There are many many levels in which you can get explanations for global workspace phenomena, and certainly the quantum level is conceivable. Uh, and uh, and then in 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 good science, uh, somebody has to prove it. Uh, it's really crucial that the burden of proof is on the proposer of the hypothesis. You can't just wave your hands and say, well, there's quantum mechanical phenomena happening in the brain, so that Right. No, I, so I... No, no. Do, do you think that... Um, because I think that one of the things that, that these guys like is the idea that, and this I think is explicit in Penrose's work, and um, I think that uh, you know Hammerhop tagged along for this. I think what part of their idea is that they just have this very strong feeling that classical computation is somehow not enough to explain how the mind works, and so quantum computation has got to come in at some point. And then they say, okay, well then how, if, it, if that's right, then where would, you, where would you look for that? And that's where the microtubules and stuff come in. But I wonder if you agree even with that first move that they make, that classical... No, no this is one of these uh, interesting theoretical, high-level mathematical descriptions uh, that have not proved to be productive. Uh, for example, the, uh, the whole Turing machine notion is very, very popular. Uh, 
just not very productive in terms of explaining the brain. So you don't think it's computational models of, of neural functioning are are doing the explanatory work? Is that what you're saying? I'm sorry, there's some kind of noise coming from Pete's end, I think. I can't. I, I understand. Let's blame Pete. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I... Sorry, would you repeat that question? I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm just, uh, is what you were just saying a second ago that you don't think Turing computation is explanatory as far as brain function is concerned? No, the Turing machine is a really wonderful way to think about the mathematics, abstract mathematics of computers, but Turing machines make assumptions uh, that are not met by the brain. Uh, Turing machines are one step at a time, uh, infinite memory, and infinite time machine, which thrills uh, good mathematicians, uh, but uh, neither of those, none of those three points uh, applies to the brain. So, 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 I'm, so I'm, I'm not thrilled with, uh, with that level of explanation because it has not been productive. We've had Turing machines for 60 years, I guess, uh, and and they have not. Uh, I mean, they have helped in in the whole mix of influences. They certainly helped uh, in building the first uh, computers, um, and they helped in in just thinking about the process of computation. Uh, but uh, it turns out actually that uh, that all uh, viable models of uh, anything, the useful including computers, is formally equivalent to a Turing machine, which means that the Turing machine itself is 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 not even necessary to to understand all this, or explanatory rather to understand all this. It's very useful in in mathematics to constrain the space of possibilities, but it 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 violates uh, real uh, computational uh, uh, machines in three fundamental ways, so it's not a good model. Now, there are all kinds of wonderful models you can set up. If you remember back to Newton, um, the orrery, uh, this, uh, this nice uh, brass uh, model of the solar system, uh, was a very popular uh, machine model uh, of the solar system, but of course it didn't have the right uh, distances, it didn't have the right sizes, uh, didn't have, uh, it, it, it used brass arms instead of uh, gravitational force uh, to keep the planets in orbit. Uh, it, it was a very rough model, but it give you, gives you a very nice visual image of the solar system. Uh, so it's, it's a crutch, it's a very useful crutch, um, but that doesn't mean it is seriously equivalent to a solar system. And so that's your that's your view about computation in the brain. So so that it's a crutch for modeling, but you don't think that there's there's comp, comp, Turing computations occurring well, at the neural level. Not, certainly not Turing computations. Or Turing equivalent computations. I mean. Turing equivalent computations. Now, now we're getting into a very big set. Of things about that Chomsky grammars are Turing equivalents, uh, and I would have to ask my mathematical friends 
to find out what what other things are Turing equivalents. Um, so uh, in in any case, it, it is uh, woefully uh, wrong uh, for um, for understanding the brain in any detail. Um, the, so what were the, the brain, three things? The three things you, that you said. So one of them was that it's step by single step by step where the brain is parallel. That was one of them, right? Right. Sequence uh, over the other one, Right. The other one is it is Turing assumes infinite time to do a computation and infinite memory. Uh, right. And, and uh, those three things uh, simply do not apply and do not apply to any physical computer at all, uh, and uh, certainly not for the brain, which, as you say, uh, looks much more like a massively parallel uh, computational system. Uh, let me just show you, uh, if, if you can see this on camera, I'm not sure. Let me just show you an image of the brain. Uh, can you see this from, uh, from our book? Yeah, a little bit. Uh -huh. uh, okay. This is going to be an audio podcast so people won't ultimately be able to see it. But. Okay. Cortex is a huge structure in human beings. Uh, it's not quite as uh, overwhelming uh, in other animals, uh, but it's big enough. Uh, and it sustains the contents of consciousness, such as visual consciousness, the things we are visually conscious of. There's also a lot of unconscious uh, stuff going on uh, in cortex as well. But the cerebellum, which is right underneath it, turns out to have about the same number of neurons as the cortex. And it's been known for at least 100 years that you can take out the cerebellum in an animal and sometimes uh, in, in human brain injury victims uh, without abolishing consciousness. A normal consciousness goes on. Uh, what happens with people who have a bilateral damage to the cerebellum uh, is that they uh, are incapable of walking or manipulating objects with their hands and so on. They lose fine motor control, but they continue to have a flow of consciousness that is reasonably normal. Uh, so, as uh, scientists, in order to talk about consciousness, almost have to have a comparison condition. This is a useful comparison condition to keep in mind. Cerebellum does not directly support the conscious experiences. Cortex does directly support conscious experiences. So we, here's a comparison condition that's nice, um, and it, it really helps us to understand uh, uh, that uh, in the case of Hameroff and Penrose, uh, the cerebellum has just as many neurons, which all have microtubules, right. which all have quantum-level phenomena taking place, which are clearly important, uh, but they do not differentially tell us why, why one structure supports conscious experiences and the other one does not. So that's the key argument. Right. I wonder if this is a fair way of characterizing the uh, the dispute um, and it goes something like this there's there's a, a, a big difference in uh, how various parties to the dispute are characterizing what it is that the target phenomenon is 
they're, they're not really in agreement about what it is that they're trying to explain. I, I, as I read the global workspace theory, it's actually quite clear about what it's trying to explain. It's saying, you know, um, there are all these various uh, pieces of information that are processed in the brain. Some of them are reportable by subjects. You, you sh you, uh, in some conditions, there could be like a light, and the subject can tell you, oh, yeah, I see the light. And there's other things that are, there's other information that is being processed in the brain that's not reportable. The, um, the subject is not able to tell you that, that, that there's been any kind of change in, in the stimulus, even though an objective observer can see that the, the change in the stimulus has had some kind of effect on what's going on in the brain. Um, but when you look at, say, uh, uh, Penrose, it's not clear that he's interested in explaining that. I don't know. I'm not sure what he's interested in explaining. Yeah. Something like mathematical creativity or something. Like how he's trying to explain how it is that we could or that we can do uncomputable, or that we perform tasks that are not computable, or that are not classically computable. Yeah, uh, Bernie, what do you think of that? Does that seem like a fair characterization of uh, maybe where you and your um, interlocutors are are uh, disagreeing? That there's disagreement even about what the target phenomenon is to be explained. That's possible. Uh, obviously, you have to ask the people who support that hypothesis uh, to, to get their point of view uh, on it. Um, I have a, a, a first guess, you, you are right, uh, uh, they are not uh, trying to explain the difference between conscious brain processes and unconscious process, uh, brain processes. Well, unconscious brain processes are probably about half of what takes place in the brain in terms of a very rough estimate. Uh, it is certainly true that uh, tons of stuff is going on in your brain right now that is not conscious. Uh, the vestibular system, the one that keeps us balanced with respect to gravity, is not conscious. We do not directly get little signals uh, into consciousness that say you are now at uh, 15 degrees uh, uh, from the vertical uh, and, and gradually leaning over uh, and, and you better correct your, your, your posture because uh, otherwise you'll topple. Uh, that it does become indirectly conscious because it goes to our visual system and it goes to our conscious body senses. But the vestibular system, which starts from those little, three little uh, loops uh, near our inner ear, uh, is not itself a conscious system. That's uh, right. But, but can I just ask you a quick question? I know I understand what you're saying, but let me just make, make sure I, I am agreeing with what you're saying. Do, do you think that you can't tell by simply by, from introspection what, you're, what orientation you're in with respect to the uh, horizon, let's say? You, you can only tell through the visual and, and body senses. You cannot tell directly from vestibular input because that is not conscious input. Uh, so there are some senses, actually, that are conscious, and there are other senses that are not conscious. Right, but if you close your eyes, I, I mean, and, and you can still tell whether you're tilted or leaning forward, so there's yeah. no visual input. That's right, no visual input, but you still have your body senses. I see, I see. Uh -huh. Right. Okay. And so how about, like, a dizzy, if after I spin around, that, diz that dizziness? Is, oh, sure, sure. Is a bodily sense? That's... 
that's not a direct awareness of vestibular swirlings? Well, it's certainly not direct awareness of vestibular uh, uh, vestibular activity. Uh, I'm, I'm not even sure what dizziness is. It's a good question. Uh, my guess is it's probably a whole mix of things. Uh, they clearly have to do with our body position with respect to gravity, uh, but uh, it's not perceived directly uh, on some sort of uh, subjective display, if right. pardon that metaphor. Uh, whereas audition is exquisitely uh, detailed um, when you listen to an orchestra or or watch a movie, uh, the visual system, uh, and so on. Uh, uh, the uh, olfaction is perhaps the original sensory system, uh, and if you're a French chef, uh, French chef, uh, uh, you you have a very very rich and precise. Uh, uh, subjective display of all the qualities of smell and taste and 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 uh, mouth feel and all these different things, uh, but there are other senses that do not uh, have that quality. The other uh, newly discovered sense along those lines, by the way, is the light detection system uh, of the retina. Uh, there is actually a, uh, a specialized system to keep us entrained uh, to to the uh, to the day day night cycle, uh, which is now turns out to be an enormously important, of course, because it actually uh, serves as a way to coordinate all kinds of other rhythms, and jet lag is the most famous example. Of a violation of that, and it's it's not that we have a particular jet lag subjectivity, <laughs> right? Uh, right. Whereas it is true that we have a visual subjectivity. Uh, those are just two examples. Language is simply rife with examples of unconscious processes. So I started off with language, actually, and language is a very interesting domain to. Uh, to talk about unconscious processes, and at this point, I don't think there is a single language researcher in the world who does not recognize that. The inner machinations of my mind are Interesting. So, you, you know, there's a lot of stuff I, I want to ask you about in what you just said, but can, since you brought up olfaction, can I, can I mention that? Um, because I, I know that, uh, so in, in your version of the global workspace theory, it's really the thalamus and the cortex in, in various areas of the cortex involved in a back and forth communication, uh, broadcasting and receiving it. Um, right. uh, so that the cortex is kind of the audience, um, the Cartesian, the, the meat theater. It's not a Cartesian theater, it's a brain theater, so to speak. Right. Um, and, and the thalamus is, is sort of projecting or playing to that theater. So I, that's the way, a pictorial way I think about your version of the theory. Um, but, 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 but as far as I understand this, and I'm not an, an expert on this, but, but I want to know what you think about it. As far as I understand it, olfaction is the only sense that doesn't go through the thalamus. Right. It goes right to the olfactory bulb. Um, right. So I wonder what, you, um, what, what you, you say about that, because clearly, like you said, it's probably the first sense, olfaction. Um, most uh, vivid sense in, in a lot of people. I certainly, in my case, I, f I find it very vivid, um, uh, phenomenologically. That is, I mean, but it doesn't look like it's going through the thalamus, and therefore, it doesn't look like it's um, part of the typical broadcast. 
Right. I, I wonder what you what you say about that. The uh, Walter Freeman uh, about that a lot, and Walter has written a lot about that. Uh, the hippocampus, uh, what really should be called the smell brain, I suppose, because it has olfaction, but it has lots of other things as well. Uh, uh, the hippocampus is part of our ancestral brain, uh, which uh, emerged before mammals, so before 200 million years ago. And as Walter points out, uh, the olfactory brain is really an autonomous sensory motor system, uh, meaning that if somehow uh, your uh, olfactory brain were to run off by itself, so, uh, because it has both sensory and motor uh, um, controls. Uh, among the sensory one is olfaction and taste, um, uh, but also the, uh, the touch. Uh, and I believe that in uh, ancestral uh, four-footed animals uh, called amnions, uh, that uh, that all kinds of other senses are involved as well, but they are covered up. Uh, by the time you get mammals, they are covered up by neocortex and thalamus. Uh, there are uh, proposals right now uh, suggesting that some parts of the olfactory um, olfactory um, nerve function uh, analogously to thalamus. Uh, so there, there's lots of interesting uh, research going on, uh, and the olfactory system and hippocampus, of course, have a huge amount of uh, uh, very important research going on. Right. The entorhinal cortex is also part of that pre-mammalian system. So can I can I just because some I, I was having trouble uh, hearing some of what you said because. Uh, it was breaking up a little bit, but you talked about the, the the smell brain, which sounds like you were saying consisted of um, the olfactory bulb and hippocampus, parts of the hippocampus, like the entorhinal cortex. Hippocampus, entorhinal, and all those tiny little uhicus uh, at the very center of the brain uh, are normally uh, called part of the medial temporal lobe. Uh -huh. That is rather misleading because this is really... Uh, our ancestral pre-mammalian brain that has grown into our brain. Uh, let me just mention, though, that um, by certain criteria, hippocampus is cortex, uh, so so that it's it's ancestral cortex, but it has um, major features similar to the cortex. The only thing is that it doesn't have the six layers. Uh, uh, it, uh, the more ancient cortex uh, has three, four, and five uh, layers, uh, whereas the neocortex, the mammalian cortex, has six layers. But it turns out that uh, you can tell a very good story uh, claiming that hippocampus is a piece of cortex. So, and that's why if you're happy to say that um, it can be a place where contents become conscious. Exactly right, yes. Well, wait a minute. Can I, I want to slow you guys down a little bit because uh, 
you know, there's there's one way of hearing what the the global workspace theory of of consciousness is, and also what the what the phenomenon is that's that's to be explained, whereby stuff concerning whether smell does or doesn't go through thalamus, or whether the hippocampus is uh, similar to cortex or not, as is is irrelevant as whether there's like quantum uh, stuff going on in microtubules. One way of thinking, one way of thinking about this is that, you know, what matters is that there's information that's that's globally broadcast within uh, a creature in such a way that it enables reportability. And, uh, and, and, and so if there were some creature that didn't have a thalamus but had some other kind of mechanism that enabled global broadcast of information, on, on one interpretation, that would be good enough for consciousness. Or similarly, you know, if there was um, uh, something other than cortex, if somebody's cerebellum was wired up in such a way that it, that it allowed uh, information coming in through through the eyes to, to be, be able to interact with uh, language pr production systems in such a way that, that visual, a visual stimulus could become reportable, then, then that would be conscious. Um, so that the, a, lot of, a lot of discussion about uh, anatomic detail is, is not explanatory. It, it, it itself is at too low of a level. What, what, what would you say to that, Bernie? I, I don't quite agree, uh, and the reason really has to do with a fundamental difference between analytic philosophers and inductive uh, scientists, uh, which is a relatively new um, division of labor, it goes back to around 1900. Mm -hmm. um, uh, inductively, you don't know until you know. And so, so you grab any handhold you can get as you're crawling up the mountainside and, and you don't care very much, uh, you know, whether it's one flavor or another as long as you can get a solid handhold in it. Uh, and the point is that we do not know the necessary and sufficient conditions for consciousness it looks like global broadcasting is a good one as one uh, apparently necessary condition, but not the only one. Now, you listed like eight conditions in your book or something. I forget the exact number, but... Exactly, right. And that's the part of the book that only Richard Brown has read. <laughs> well, I, hey, all right. <laughs> good job, Richard. Yeah, it's, I, I like to read. <laughs> right, it's, it's the second half of the book and it's summarized in the last chapter uh, with, uh, I think it may have been six or seven, but it could have been eight, I don't know. Uh, we can, you know, as you rethink it, every time you rework it, you, you think of something new and, and so on. Which is, again, uh, the point that in, in the inductive process of of working with both evidence and theory, uh, you're really crawling up that hill, and the generalization to uh, to to non-biological systems is 
in my mind, uh, a, a leap too far. Um, now, there are lots of people who like to talk that way, but uh, the only cases we know of consciousness are biological. So that's our database. That is the source of our evidence. And we are by no means in the position of having a complete picture. For example, we do not know nearly enough about the neuromodulators that are necessary for consciousness. We know that certain brain chemicals turn on uh, when uh, we wake up in the morning and turn off when we go back to sleep at night. Uh, those appear to be biologically very, very widespread. They're highly conserved. Um, and, uh, and precisely how they function and operate is certainly not entirely clear to me. Uh, and new neuromodulating molecules are still being discovered. We don't really know uh, a lot about uh, the uh, uh, about uh, cortical columns, right, uh, and so on. So there's there's just a tremendous amount. <clears throat> excuse me. There's a tremendous amount that remains to be discovered. Right. So I like. I like. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Pete. Go ahead. I was, was going to say that we need to uh, take a, a a quick break. Uh, but when we come back from the break, uh, I hope we could we could press Bernie a bit more about machine consciousness or, or consciousness in non-biological systems. But Richard, did you want to say something before the break, or you want to? Do we do it after it's, the break? It's after the break now. Welcome back from the break. So where we left off, uh, <laughs> Bernie was saying that that, that there's a. Uh, you know, I I I was I was uh, being a little bit skeptical about the relevance of certain uh, levels of neuroanatomical or neurophysiological uh, data for uh, explaining what consciousness is. And in a bit, I was being a devil's advocate because um, I love brains. I mean, even, you know, what's, it, what's nice about I, what Bernie was saying is that even um, the ultimate uh, detail skeptic of the universe, Daniel Dennett himself, even he has officially apologized, <laughs> not apologized, but he's officially come out and said, Neurons are much more interesting than I thought, yeah. and the Pitt-McCullough sort of simple non-biological model of a neuron is not enough. You need to actually know some biological details, and um, we don't know how 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 like you. I have the neuromodulators. I think are very important. Totally not well understood at this point. So we're working on it, obviously, or people are working on it. So, but but I, I think that's right. You need to get the complete details of of neurons working. Um, but I wonder, Bernie, what you say about people, um, you know, like the like the Human Brain Project people who say you don't need to understand what that stuff does, you just need to simulate it in all of its detail, and then you get uh, whatever the brain does. So you can make a conscious machine just by um, doing the cortical columns. If you could, if you could, you know, st simulate the entire cortex just as it actually runs. Um, then that thing would be conscious according to them. So uh, that's one way into machine consciousness, or on your view, right, or no? It's really hard to tell. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm originally a cognitive psychologist, and I don't know everything in that field. Uh, then I grew into cognitive neuroscience, which combines the two. Um, and when I talk to people, other people who are uh, 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 
dyed-in-the-wool uh, neuroscientists, uh, I don't see them believing this, uh, this story, uh, certainly not at this point. Now, in science, everybody can be wrong. You know, it's, it's kind of kind of a very egalitarian system. We all get to be wrong, unless we're not. So, so, uh, so I do not know. There is considerable uh, argument about whether cortical columns even exist, or whether they exist locally. Let's say in the sensory regions and in the motor, uh, in the primary motor cortex for example, which has nice maps uh, of, um, of the motor output, uh, arrays. Everything comes down to arrays uh, in cortex. Um, and they're very often spatiotopical uh, arrays. Uh, the ones in motor cortex are the, the ones in primary sensory cortex are. And then things get very fuzzy. So um, I would... Uh, really want to ask uh, somebody who studies the exact histology, the cellular structure uh, of cortex uh, to see what the current opinion is uh, about the existence of columns. Columns have been proposed, they were, they were proposed about 40 years ago I think by Mountcastle. It, it was a very interesting and provocative and helpful proposal I think, but then um, then there's also some dispute about how real they are. In the case of the uh, Big Brain Project, uh, they are uh, postulated. Uh, they're they're constructs, um, and um, and and that's not. You know, making constructs is what I do. Uh, it's what everybody does uh, who thinks about the brain or the mind brain. Um, so we make constructs constantly, uh, and then we discard them when they are no longer useful. Uh, working memory, for example, has been a very, very useful construct in cognitive psychology. And then when you start looking at the brain, you realize there's no box uh, that says working memory on it. <laughs> working memory involves all kinds of uh, cortical and subcortical processes. So, uh, so the, the only thing I, w I would say here is that when you think inductively in a very careful way, you also have to say uh, that you don't know a lot of the time because you don't know. If you start pretending that you do know, then you get uh, biased in the way you evaluate uh, evidence and theory. I wish I could remember who said this to me, but it was it was a neuroscientist, and it was at a conference that there were a lot of neuroscientists and, and philosophers at. And uh, Richard was there too, so he, maybe he remembers it. Okay. But the scientist said, you know, I, I was kind of giving him a, the kind of hard time I'm giving you, Bernie. And the scientist said, I I think a good thing. He said, you know, uh, you analytic philosophers, you care real, you know, about precise definitions, but that's very dangerous. Uh, and the danger is that you get stuck in a local minimum. It's good. To, it's actually good to be kind of sloppy in the definition of your of your concepts, because because uh, that allows you to be open. And I hear this is very similar to what you're saying about inductive science. That well, the the modification I would make is to talk about operational definitions, yeah. um, because that a lot of the time that's what we use. That's our basic crutch to crawl up that mountain. Uh, and operational definitions, we start off, as you know, 
with some observation and then we get enough confidence in the observation to say, well, that's a very good measure of what we think of intuitively as selective attention. Right. And, and, and then, you know, we keep pushing that and pushing that, but with an open mind, so that now if it turns out that there is another uh, better way uh, of uh, looking at the brain processes underlying what we think of as selective attention, that is to say the selection of one stream of input over another stream of input to come to consciousness, uh, that's kind of the intuitive folk idea uh, of selective attention. Uh, if there turns out to be a better way, we, we keep on looking for a better way and ultimately uh, this thing uh, distills down into a, a much richer and deeper understanding of what selective attention really entails. Right. But don't, I, I, I'm going to keep pushing in a direction that's, that's pro-functionalism and pro-artificial intelligence because I think this is kind of interesting to see your reaction to it. You, you know, you said that working memory, there's nothing, there's no box. There's no single module in the brain that we could say, ah, there you go, that's working memory. But um, you're pretty comfortable still saying, talking about working memory and saying that, they're, that that's a useful sure. construct, right? Sure, yes. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be an eliminativist about memory and, or say that, uh, like some neuroscientists say about free will, who has shown that there is no such thing. There is such a thing. It's just a very complicated story about what its relationship is to the brain. And if you want to understand uh, further what working memory is, you would give some kind of functionalist or information processing story about it. You'd say, like, you know, there's, there's certain information that's present uh, in the stimulus that, um, that can be retained uh, for a certain amount of time, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a certain capacity to it. Other memory systems might have a different capacity or different decay rates. It, but it, this is all done at a relatively abstract level. It's abstracting away from physiological or anatomical detail. Yeah. Right? It, with regard to AI, uh, I've been working for a couple of decades, I think, by now, with Stan Franklin, who is a distinguished uh, AI researcher. Uh, also tremendously interested in, in the human mind and brain. Uh, so Stan and I talk about uh, the relationship between AI modeling uh, and the whatever it is we're trying to understand here. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, AI is wonderful. I, I got the notion of a global workspace uh, from uh, Alan Newell's uh, research group at Carnegie Mellon in the 1970s who really worked it out beautifully and showed that it was functional. It actually did a great job at the time with uh, speech recognition, which wow. still is a very hard problem. Um, and the, the reason why Newell's group used this global workspace architecture was to get multiple knowledge sources interacting with each other and kind of voting on the acoustical input. Uh, speech is, is really a, a very hairy thing to study uh, because it's an acoustical signal which is basically analog uh, and it, uh, it, bounces, it, it gets generated by a vocal tract and which is uh, a physically rather complex uh, 
system and the muscular control of the vocal tract is is enormous. It's I believe it's the biggest um, uh, motor control system in the body and certainly the most um, precisely timed uh, motor control system that we have. Um, and so when you get this signal going out into the world, it gets absorbed by some surfaces, it gets bounced off all the other surfaces, uh, and of course it, it differs depending upon whether you have a mouse or, or a lion, because the size of the vocal tract is so radically different. Uh, and yet we can hear what babies are saying pretty well, uh, and we can hear what uh, uh, what a person with a bass voice is saying. So, so we have a tremendous amount of uh, neuronal specialization dedicated to both the production and the perception uh, of speech. This is a very hairy system. Yeah. So uh, DARPA in the 1970s uh, posed a challenge, yeah. saying that okay, we're going to produce, we're going to have a regular speaker uh, sitting in a regular room and saying a thousand words and your job uh, all you scientists um, is to identify those words uh, that's a tough task and so you had a, a syntax processor you had a lexicon processor you had a phoneme processor and an acoustical processor and so on all of them looking at this signal and voting on what they thought that uh, utterance was out of a thousand possible words. And it worked. Okay, that marks the approximate halfway point of today's episode. We're going to pause for a quick break, and when we come back from the break, we'll continue our discussion with neuroscientist Bernie Bars. We will be right back. Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wire tripped? No? A virgin brain. Well, we're gonna start you off right. This isn't like TV only better. This is life. Yeah, it's a piece of somebody's life. Pure and uncut. Straight from the cerebral cortex. No. We might be able to locate you if you gave us some idea of what they were using you for. Is it medical? I'm not certain. I seem to have a body which stretches into infinity. Body? Wait, you have none. Then what am I? You are a disembodied brain.
wanted to ask you about the work that you do with Stan um, Franklin because so if I, I'm not sure what your conclusion of that was. So if he's working on actually modeling the global workspace, the global neur neuronal workspace, um, you're you're still you're saying that's. I mean, I, I take it where you were going with that is that's a useful crutch that modeling and understanding that, but sure. that you don't get you don't get consciousness out of even like extending that process. I, I don't think uh, we have a conscious machine, or Stan has a conscious machine, even though he's worked at it for 30 years. With but say you gave him 130 more, would it be a conscious machine then? <laughs> I mean, it, why is it by isn't an extendable process where if it's just more modeling power and then you get it, or do you just think there's an in-principle barrier, or are you just going to say, I don't know? I'm, I'm going to end up saying, I don't know because I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but do you, have a gut, do you have a suspicion, like a gut reaction, an inkling? It's, it's a very attractive thought experiment. Uh, but the only thought experiment that I know that has actually worked was Einstein's thought experiment when he was 16 years old and imagined himself <laughs> flying on a ray of light. And that was a reductio. Right? That was a reductio ad absurdum. So, so that was a way to disprove the conventional wisdom in physics at that time, which thought experiments uh, are, are pretty useful for. I do not know of any thought experiments that count in the sense that uh, a, an actual experiment does. Right. I, so that's, that's, a, that's a, I agree with you, I think, about the role that thought experiments play. And I don't think that they get um, any credentials by calling them Gerdunken or whatever experiments like some people like to do. Um, but I do think that, I mean, I don't want to uh, change the topic too much, but I do think that part of what scientists do is think about counterfactuals and think about how, ways the world, that you could interfere with the world and make guesses about what would happen if you did. Um, and so those, uh, in that sense, then, thought experiments always perceive actual experiments, or, or typically perceive actual but experiments. For scientists, the important heuristic is to think about uh, possible experiments that are testable. So right, and so, but, but I would just say some of these have led to testable stuff. You know, Dennett's famous example is the false belief test. That was a kind of a thought experiment, and then they went and found, they did, I mean, maybe too much research on it, actually, but, but it's, it became an important thing, and, and so, so sometimes, I'm not, I'm not defending weird thought experiments, I'm just saying thinking about ways the world could turn out to be is, is useful, and that's related to thought experiments. That was the only a limited claim that I was trying to defend. Yeah, uh, look, uh, I'm, I'm not going to criticize anybody for thinking, uh, <laughs> and then... You know, life is short, uh, art is long, and, and, and we have to utilize our time as best we can. So we use heuristics, little rules of thumb that have worked before uh, to narrow the search space. The search space obviously explodes. It, we have a combinatorial explosion of choices. Uh, and so from a, a working point of view, from a practical point of view, uh, how, do, how do we turn out to be the most productive? And my way of doing that is to think of hypotheses that are testable. I have to say, by the way, that I did, in 1988, I did not anticipate the brain imaging revolution, uh, which has suddenly made 
huge amount of this uh, quite testable in, right. in extremely convincing ways. Uh, I never imagined that that would happen so quickly. I mean, you might say it's it's happened so quickly, so fastly that the global workspace theory has almost become uh, a canonically accepted or background theory in the sense that a lot of people are working with it, and and a lot of people who think they're arguing for some something which looks like which they think is a new the a novel theory really just turns out to be a, a another like piece of the puzzle of global workspace theory, or at least that's what it seems like to me a lot, a lot of the times. Right, and you have to remember that uh, Aristotle and Plato. Uh, had essentially a global workspace theory. Oh, really? <laughs> and they thought well of it, so so that's a good recommendation too. <laughs> so, um, I, I hate to have to do this, but I feel like we need to bring up Qualia. Oh, you had to ruin the good science party. <laughs> now, people people that are that hang out in consciousness circles know that uh, for some researchers. That is consciousness, the topic of qualia or the topic of wh what it's like to see um, red versus seeing blue, and um, th there's there's one kind of and, and like let me just let me just emphasize I really like the global workspace uh, theory of consciousness. I think something like that is is definitely going to be the the right theory. And I, I Bernie, I like your general approach to 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 tackling this. Uh, in an open and scientific way, instead of uh, what I think of as an overly philosophical way. So I'm really, I'm just, I'm being devil's advocate here. Sure. So, yeah, uh, Richard. Doesn't knows, a, the I devil actually, doesn't have a very good advocate. I, I, I hate Richard knows I hate qualia, but I'm gonna pretend like I like qualia. But so he um, knows that I like qualia, so yeah. I'll, I'll pretend that I'm. All right. So, um, you know, there's one way of hearing the global workspace theory, whereby um, you're talking about. Uh, the the difference between information that's reportable and, and information that's not reportable by the subject in whose brain the information is being processed. Right. And uh, but what people like David Chalmers or Thomas Nagel, uh, Joseph Levine are really interested in is this other topic, and it's this topic of of this. You know, there's a certain property that, like, I have introspective access to when I look at uh, a bright red paint chip, and there's a different property that I have introspective access to when I look at a bright blue paint chip. And um, what what does global access have to do with that? Like, the global access doesn't explain the difference between uh, what it's like to see red versus what it's like to see blue. Um, you know, so w one thing I'm kind of, uh, and this is speaking for myself now, not the the devil devil's advocate. Um, uh, w what room do you see in the global workspace theory for something like qualia? Like, what is the difference between a red experience versus a blue experience? Um, is the, is how, how, what do you have to say about qualia? How do you how do you fit it into the, to the theory, if at all? I'm in the process of working out a paper. On that topic, uh, I haven't really dealt with qualia in the philosophical sense. Uh, right now, first of all, it seems to me that uh, philosophical puzzles these days uh, are posed to be untestable. So, uh, so that's <laughs> one problem. 
Uh, well, you wouldn't want to be found out wrong. Well, that's not fair. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend. It depends on who you're talking about because some theses are metaphysical and therefore not meant to be tested, and you might not care about them, but that's a different enterprise. And then other people, I think, are making testable hypotheses. Um, hypotheses. And you, I know, Bernie, you don't like some of these people. Their views, I mean, you don't like. Uh, but I think like Ned, Ned's view, Ned Block's view, it says testable view. I guess you disagree with that. Uh, but we'll get we'll get to that. So, but I agree that what we want are testable hypotheses. I I, I agree with that much. Of what's going right. on? Right. So uh, so Mary, the color scientist, uh, and uh, and what is it like to be a bat? Uh, uh, those things are let's say inherently uh, very difficult to test and perhaps impossible. Uh, but in any case, not uh, we don't have to worry that the answer will come up too soon before we retire. So, uh, so, so there is an issue there uh, about uh, posing puzzles uh, that keep scientists scratching their heads uh, uh, because they have no idea how to approach it. Uh, there is a more constructive way to deal with all these things, and that is to uh, look at uh, the long history of color theory. Uh, which uh, in modern times uh, started started with Newton's uh, prism experiment, uh, and uh, Newton used perfectly subjective criteria for judging that the incoming sunlight was pretty much white light. It's actually not quite uh, white light; it's broad spectrum uh, whitish light, depending upon the kind of day you have in Cambridge, England. Uh, <laughs> And and the out, and the outcoming uh, the the uh, colors that are the, the prism uh, splits the white spectrum into colors, and you judge those colors using your eyes. Uh, so that's an entirely subjective thing, but of course it is uh, well shared by other subjective beings, so that you, that you get a very good consensus among observers. Uh, right. Now that that uh, started a 500-year-long research program that is still going on because we still do not fully understand the way the brain uh, or even the eye uh, processes um, color, uh, but we know a lot about it and, uh, and my plan is to uh, maybe work with the psychophysicist who knows all that stuff and uh, and make a proposal about how that could be integrated with global workspace theory. But but Bernie, so do do you, would you agree with this much of your opponent with your opponent that um, when you consciously experience red, it doesn't seem like there's any brain activity necessarily tied to that. Um, so that just from the experience side of things talking about neurons and um, wavelengths and synchrony and GABA and V4 or whatever else you throw out there, it doesn't really seem like right off the bat from the inside like any of that's relevant, which I guess is where the other guy starts from. And so, I mean, that, that, you agree with that much, right, that from the inside that, that sort of seems like a different question. We all start from subjective experiences. Uh, and then we learn more about them, and then if we're lucky, we find uh, a, a, a new level of evidence that serves uh, to explain the first level of evidence. And Descartes worked on the optics of the eye, as you know. Uh, 
Yeah. So, uh, so Descartes made perfectly good scientific contributions. He did so many things. He did mathematics. Um, uh, so, uh, so the the Cartesian puzzles that we talk about today are kind of what's left over after Descartes and a whole bunch of other people got through uh, solving problems. Yeah. Right. No, right. So, but 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 I I think what Pete's devil advocacy was trying to get at was that, and then by the way, I sort of disagree with the way Pete set the problem up, so I would set it up differently. I would say that, uh, you know, someone like Chalmers, David Chalmers, um, who is, a, you know, probably a dualist by most reasonable standards of, of, that, of what that term means, um, he's also argued that availability or global broadcast is the neural correlate of conscious experience. So he's, he's someone who could be perfectly happy saying, Global workspace or something like it is the neural mechanism which correlates with conscious experience. He's just going to insist that in addition there's additional things like the redness of the red, and that's where I think we all here would disagree with him. I think we're all on the same page that we don't want to add that extra thing that red. We think you know somehow is going to be accounted for in the in the other stuff. But but I mean it's it's unfair to say like Pete did that they want to. That they they don't want to explain the same thing you want to explain. They want to explain what happens when you see when you consciously see red, and if the neural mechanisms that are involved with that are global broadcast, then there's nothing in their view like makes them say that's bad. They just say they just want to deny an identification with uh, of that and say there's yeah. a, that's a correlate of it. And I would agree with that uh, oh. because because it's it's possibly we hope perhaps a a a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition. There's That's right. So I see more. I see. I I want more harmony. I know because I I agree. Zombies. I, personally, I find zombies annoying. Annoying and thinking about Mary to be a bit frustrating. And because you know you're building a lot of stuff like oh we know all science. Poof. Therefore this. Yeah. All right. Well, we know almost zero science. And even after a thousand years, so that seems a bit ridiculous to me. I mean, I, I this is something I think you, you appreciate, and that's what I like is that when you look at hominids on Earth, you know. Hundred thousand years of human being-ish things, um, four hundred years of mathematical science. Well, all right, so <laughs> we we got a ways to go here. We're nowhere near the end. Yeah, I, you get the feeling that people sort of feel like we're sort of near the end sometimes. <laughs> right. But what do you guys think of this? If if you're interested in harmony, uh, here's a harmony proposal. Um, so the um, what global workspace gives you is an, is an account of what it means for some piece of information to be conscious information versus unconscious information. Conscious information is globally, access, globally accessed or globally accessible, whereas the unconscious information isn't. And then the question about qualia gets answered by saying that, well, qualia has to do with whether what the piece of information is. Part of the qualia question is the question of phenomenal character. What is uh, the difference between having a blue experience and having a red experience? Uh, that's not going to be the difference between being globally accessed versus not globally accessed. It's going to instead be the difference between encoding information about one kind of spectral information versus encoding some other spectral information, or maybe some kind of complicated thing that has to do with um, opponent processes in uh, uh, early uh, cortical uh, pro uh, vision or maybe even subcortical processes. So the, the question of phenomenal character isn't a question of state consciousness. 
the question of state consciousness is what's the difference between a conscious state and an unconscious state. Uh, but given some, given two different conscious states, what makes one the red one versus the blue one is going to be, well, what information is encoded, what, what information is being processed. Right. Uh, first of all, the, the, the word access uh, has too many different meanings. Uh, and uh, sometime soon I have to write a little paper uh, talking about uh, all the different kinds of access that are meaningful. In Bias, this. You know, really quickly, have you uh, have you read Sid Kuder's um, uh, work or his article he had in Trends of Cognitive Sciences a while ago? Where you know he has this idea of partial access that there's many levels of access and um, it happens at many different levels in processing. So you can have um, access to uh, you know phonetic stuff. You can have access to uh, degraded information, partial information. So I think that's that's I think that's an important point. I uh, I wonder if this is uh, in line with what you're saying. Yeah, if you have a PDF copy of that and you can send it to me, uh, I would like to read it. Uh, that's certainly true, but even that is assuming that the notion of uh, consciousness being uh, that of consciousness uh, facilitating access between different brain functions. Um, is itself uh, unambiguous. Uh, I don't think it is. Uh, and and one of the uh, uh, notions of access that I proposed in the 88 book was the access of an observing ego system uh, to sensory information, for example. Um, and and I think uh, that is still something that remains to be worked out in detail and. Uh, and tested against uh, the available information. What, is this by in the brain? Is this some is like medial temporal areas, or so maybe prefrontals, or do you have ventral medial in mind, or where in the? Yeah, the the big candidate these days is the precuneus, uh, which is the medial. Uh, uh, sorry, the the posterior part of the parietal cortex uh, on the medial side of things. So it's, uh, it's, it's the posterior cingulate in a sense, uh, or close to it. And the anterior cingulate has been identified importantly for some other stuff, so the cingulate seems important. Very interesting. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting structure, but then uh, that is such a rich domain, uh, and it, it becomes so interesting and, and fruitful to look at uh, uh, since uh, brain imaging became practical. Um, it, and, and of course we keep on learning more and more about smaller and smaller pieces of that pie. Uh, but in any case, uh, Precunius is said to be uh, uh, a, a possible uh, location of functions that correspond to the intuitive idea of an observing ego, which uh, there's a huge philosophical history there, of course. Um, uh, Kant, I, I think, is, is one of the great minds uh, in that, uh, but the, it goes way back and, it, uh, and it's very intuitive, it, it very intuitively attractive. Everybody, in some sense, has a folk belief uh, in that. Um, uh, by the way, I want to flag that one issue that I want to ask Bernie about before we let him off the hook here is the accessible accessed. Um, distinction and that uh, and the whole uh, net block um, 
contested issue, which I think I want to know what he thinks about that. And I might actually defend Ned a little bit in this instance, although half-heartedly. Um, but okay, so uh, uh, that's a lot to get to in a half hour. So higher order <laughs> consciousness, unity of consciousness. And overflow and... Uh, All right. Um, access and access versus access. So Richard, were you in the middle of a question? Yeah, well, I was just asking Bernie about this observing ego, which I know is a big part. I, I, I mean, obviously, since I'm the only person who's read the second half of his book, <laughs> um, <laughs> I know that this is something that he talks about in that second half of the book, and you've and it's, it's something that's implicit, I think, in a lot of stuff you say because you're one of the few people around. Um, I don't know if that's true anymore, but anyway, you used to be one of the few people around who was perfectly happy talking about a Cartesian theater if it was properly understood. No. I think this is part of that. Not a Cartesian theater, it's a theater. Well, I, that's what I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, not a Cartesian theater, but a theater-type metaphor. And so I think this observing ego thing is part of that, right? It's definitely part of it. And, uh, and the puzzling thing, of course, is how to talk about it clearly, how to test it, all that stuff. Uh, it, one way to think about it, uh, as I just, it just occurred to me, uh, since Ned is talking about higher order, and there's all kinds of higher order stuff going on. Uh, after something uh, uh, comes to consciousness, um, I think there's a way of contrasting Ned's view with the Kantian view that the really important stuff is not what happens after something comes to consciousness when you can interpret it at many different levels and do. Um, but but the prior stuff, the a priori stuff, the, the presupposed stuff, and, and that the observing ego, so-called, what we intuitively, folklorically think of as the observing ego, really has to do with the adaptation, uh, with adaptation between the uh, pre-existing set of assumptions that one makes about the world um, including, for example, if, if you're baby learning to crawl, uh, you really do see the world, uh, you know, the visual flow of the world as you crawl along, but you interpret that in terms of your self-movement um, because it's perfectly ambiguous. Uh, if, you know, you see the same flow if you're being carried uh, by your mom uh, as if you're crawling yourself, but um, uh, we are biologically assigned not to confuse uh, those two identical visual flows. Uh, so there has to be something in all of our sensory motor systems actually to distinguish between self-motion and other motion, uh, including uh, motion in the entire uh, sensorium, the, the entire available um, sensory input stream. So, uh, so, we, uh, so all uh, robot. Uh, so, so this is, I, I, I'm sorry, I think this is an important point and you know I've, I've been talking, so I, I was wondering the way in which you're contrasting that with Ned's view um, by Ned Block because one th when you push him hard enough on this and you know I've, I've had the chance to talk to him about this and, and um, see other people push him on this as well and what, what he says is that he agrees with what you're saying, I think, in a limited sense that he, he recognizes that there's a kind of, you know, sense of me. He calls it a me-ishness at some point in one of his papers, a kind of 
a kind of primitive sense of this belonging to me. His question is, how do you interpret that? Um, and his only and his big his big objection is that you shouldn't interpret that in terms of. I mean, really, when you press them, press them, press them, you shouldn't interpret in terms of working memory. Um, or, or in other words, that what what he really is targeting in a lot of his work is the idea that a conscious representation or a conscious mental state is one that is actually encoded in working memory. That's really the target that he has in mind, and that's nothing like a global that global workspace theory that you have. I mean, that that's just maybe someone like Jesse Prince or someone else might have a view like, and I don't even think Jesse does, as a matter of fact. But I mean, clearly he's targeting a, a once you get into the details of his view, he's targeting a different kind of view, I think, than the one that you're actually defending. Because you you don't think that no, it has I, to be encoded. You have to understand that there's, there's a language gap here, and I never fully understand what Ned is is claiming, so <laughs> I need all the help I can get. Okay. <laughs> well, how about this? I mean, isn't the Sperling thing kind of clear? A, a clear example of, of where Ned and his uh, opponents differ. I would love to, I would love to hear a clear explanation of that. Uh, I mean, that's that is um, a part of what I have some difficulty with. But uh, let me uh, deal with the meanness. Okay. Uh, there's obviously uh, all kinds of. Uh, I mean, there there are a ton of experiences that have to do with oneself. But those are objects of perception in the in the uh, Hindu way of of looking at it. They they are they are the self treated as an object in the world. Uh, that's kind of that's self consciousness. Uh, it is not primary consciousness uh, like consciousness of a red ball. Let's say yeah. uh, the the real issue from my point of view. Is the unconscious uh, framework within which uh, we interpret um, we, we interpret uh, subjective experiences? So, so again, think about being the baby who crawls along uh, the floor and runs into a red ball, um, and and what that baby needs to properly perceive its visual environment, one of the things that really needs is in some sense a point of origin uh, of some, let's call it a, 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 let's call it a uh, Cartesian space uh, where you want to know how far you are away uh, uh, from that sharp object that you know you don't want to bump into. Um, and and so you have to have implicit self-knowledge about your own location, right. as well as the location of the sharp object. But so by by implicit, so you don't think like place cells and grid cells and hippocampus and the way that they are synchronized the theta oscillations and that doesn't provide enough information. I mean, do you really need to bring a self into it? Isn't that a maybe that's part of it? Yes, that whole system. But as there's an implicit self, right? It's like. It, it actually, if you ask people, uh, where's your real self uh, located, uh, they will actually point to, uh, uh, say, uh, well, according to some studies, uh, they will actually point to about an inch behind the top of your nose, uh, and uh, which may be perfectly correct 
from an optical point of view, for example. Yeah, they are their LGN. <laughs> they are their LGN, right? <laughs> or their. So, so this is, but this is inferred, obviously, right? Uh, which is not to say that it's unimportant, uh, because uh, if if the baby doesn't know where it is, it is going to hurt itself by bumping into to that sharp object. So so self, uh, so implicit knowledge about oneself um, is is crucial, and we clearly have a, a ton of it. Uh, if we just think about uh, moving in space, um, it, it's not a bad thing to suppose that we have this uh, implicit, this inferred, unconscious uh, spatial origin that uh, we use to understand our movement with respect to other objects. Um, and it's very much like the uh, heads-up display in a jet cockpit. Uh, where you you see the important things right on the display. Um, you see uh, where your plane is, you see uh, where your your guns or your cameras are pointing, uh, you see uh, where your target is, and they, they all have little squares around them, little drifting squares, just like a video game, uh, that when they intersect with each other, uh, then you can shoot at your target. Uh, so that kind of knowledge uh, has to be available to us, uh, but it's not an object of consciousness, of course. Right. So, uh, so I think uh, I think the the observing ego system has to be a very complex, dynamic, functional system. Uh, it appears to be associated with parietal cortex and possibly in ancestral forms um, with hippocampus, uh, place cells, all that. Parietal cortex in the neocortex is just enormous. It's very, very large. Um, and it does, it is believed to have both egocentric and allocentric maps of the visual space. A critique of pure reason? What's this? Oh, just some book. It's pretty cool. The possibility of apodictic apodictic principles? What's that? Well, I mean, he's using the word oddly here because he wants to prove an a priori body of synthetic knowledge is exhibited in the general doctrine of motion. Because he wants to prove I, an a priori you mean, it, you? But of course, he takes it as a given that universality and necessity can't be reached by empirical processes. That the a priori is not... So can I? Can, this gets me back to. I'm glad that unless Pete, did you want to follow up on this? Because I wanted to steer it back towards. I think a way that this connects to the thing we were talking about just a second ago. Uh, I was going to try to get it back to higher thoughts. Is that what you're going to do? Yeah, I'm going to get it to no higher thoughts, which is similar. Let me, uh, all right. Let so me, hold. Let sorry, me quickly before you get to that. Uh, um, if if Kant is right, as you've described him, uh, Richard. Uh, then there is a kind of access between the observing ego and the contents of consciousness. Okay, and I just wanted to say that the word access uh, uh, is very attractive, but there are many different kinds of conceivable access. All right. right. Go, go so ahead. that's exactly that. Is, I'm glad you said that. So that's sort of what I was going to get at is 
that um, on the thing that Ned wants to argue against is a version of what he calls cognitive access. Um, so he wants to his his position is that consciousness overflows or outstrips what he calls cognitive access. And then you go, that's interesting, because he admits there's multiple kinds of access, and he says, I'm interested in cognitive access. And you go, well, what does that mean? And then he says, oh, I mean encoding and working memory. And, and so he, he has this, uh, this view that um, there are, whether it's true or there must be true, but he, he, there are people out there, he says, who make the following claim, that consciousness just is having contents encoded in working memory, whereas Ned's view is the things that are conscious are just simply the things which are broadcasted but not encoded. So he says it's availability or broadcasting not receiving or being accessed. It's accessibility, not access. So he wants to make that distinction and talk about, in, put it in your terms, I think, Bernie, he would say what's conscious is what's globally broadcast, whether it's accessed by any particular system or not. It's just the broadcasting of it that is what consciousness is, according to him. Yeah, and, and I would not claim that. Right. Uh, because it's not the necessary and sufficient conditions. Uh, uh, one of the additional necessary conditions would seem to be uh, this uh, observing ego part, which in this 88 book, I argue, uh, corresponds to a hierarchy of contexts, uh, which by now I'm calling frames because the word context has been ripped off by somebody else. <laughs> so, uh, so, so you want to be unambiguous. So, uh, so frames seem to be the more the, the, currently the, the better word to use. Right, and so this is where so this is where I think that we can try to make some progress on this because what Ned wants to do is actually try to do some to figure out some ways to test these different the different views whether or not your view or his view is right and that's where the Sperling stuff is supposed to come in and more importantly in my view the Amsterdam um, paradigm uh, I think that's a more that that's a better case to think about uh, and the Sperling kind of um, uh, Wait, wait, anyway, so... Um, Should we describe Sperling for the listeners? Yeah, go ahead. So the classic Sperling experiment, you're presented with a, an array of, of letters, and there's three rows... Or paradigm, right? Uh, yeah, and there's, there's three rows of letters, and there's, what, four or five letters in each row? And... Uh, I thought it was just three, or yeah, I'm not sure how many letters... There's definitely in. three rows. It's three by four, I believe. Yeah, three, four letters in each row, and um, if you uh, if you present these uh, twelve letters to somebody, and then you remove the presentation and say, "Okay, tell me how many letters uh, you you saw," they they will you know th there's some average number of letters that they will give you, but if um, if right after you take away uh, the uh, display, you play a tone. And it's one of three tones, a high tone, a medium tone, and a low tone. And the subject is instructed that high means uh, correspond to the top row, low corresponds to the bottom row, the medium tone corresponds to the middle row. So after you remove the presentation, you play the tone, and, uh, and, and the, the prior instruction is just tell us the letters that uh, correspond to the tone row. They now are able to recall uh, more letters. They like get all the letters in that row. It's more letters than they got in the in the whole report condition. They do better in the partial report condition than in the in the whole 
report condition. And now, crucially, the tone comes after the visual uh, stimulus is no longer crucial. being displayed. Right. And also, it can otherwise be they can any just row. focus. Pardon me. Right. It can be any row. Yeah, that's right. So what Ned Block wants to say about this stuff uh, is that well, for, yeah, okay. He's uh, after he's conscious of all twelve of the letters. He's conscious of of, of more letters than he's able to report in either the partial report or the whole report uh, condition that you know he, he also says he himself has, has been a subject in in one of these and he so he, he he claims that you know he had this phenomenology of yeah. hold on uh, hold on hold on right, of experiencing all 12 letters <laughs> so look let's, let's put it in the way that that's most congenial to what the actual thesis that he's arguing for is yeah, here's what he's. Well, I was trying to do that. No, you weren't actually. You're setting it up in a way that makes everyone want to jump on it and attack it. Let's set it up in a way that makes it sound like a reasonable empirical result um, from this empirical paradigm, which is what his claim really is. So, so here's what is. So let's translate this. What the experimental results establish is that the um, the representation or the information contained in the four uh, uh, in the three by four grid is globally broadcast. That's what the experiments show us, is that that information is available to multiple systems. And uh, the way that you know that is because you can play the tone at any one of the three levels, and you, you can get that information. You can access that stuff. And so it must have been available for you to access. So the thing is broadcasted. That's the, that's the first thing that the Sperling thing suggests, um, is that the information that is actually broadcasted. But not all of it is, but not all of it is accessed. Um, only part part of it is actually um, accessed to the point where you can say uh, um, they these are the identities of the letters. So that's what that's just the, what the experimental results uh, seem to suggest is that the information is there, but you don't access all of the information. So that much that's reasonable, right? Everyone here agrees with that. Uh, yeah. So just be re real clear. So like after all twelve have been taken away, you can. Play any of those three tones, and they uh, and they will. The subject will be able to get all four of the items from the corresponding row. So, so then that suggests that the information is ac is accessible, but not actually accessed, except unless you play the right tone. Would you agree with that, Bernie? That much of it? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's close. Uh, I I'm always a little hesitant. Uh, to say that we know the full story. No, uh, but I think suggests like it, this is a reasonable interpretation of the data. Okay. Okay. So, and then let me add one more thing to it. So now we'll let we can uh, make this in a way that maybe Bernie will like. Maybe you want. I want. It'd be. I'd be curious to see what you say. So let's say that um, there are different kinds of access, and one kind of access that's going on there is from the ego system, and what the ego system is accessing is something like this. Uh, there are 12 letters of various identities here, um, but it doesn't access the particular identities of any individual letter, even though that information is available. Uh, but the individual, the, the self is kind of just, the ego self is just accessing, oh, this general information. Um, but there, there's a different system which is accessing the particular identities of the letters, and that system maybe is something like working memory and is the thing which initially results in the report. Yeah, uh, the 88 uh, second half 
of the book version is that uh, the very process of identifying the stimuli uh, is itself an adaptive process in which uh, part, the lower part of the context hierarchy is shaping itself um, according to the input uh, so that uh, you have a space uh, a little bit like a Tononi, a high-dimensional space of, of possibilities uh, and the, the act of perception, of conscious perception, involves adaptation uh, of presupposed knowledge about visual scenes, for example, about colors, about closeness and distance, and so on. Uh, you're adapting that uh, to, to fit the stimulus uh, uh, like a, a bunch of clay that you, over, that you place over all those uh, dimensions of stimulation uh, so that um, there, it's not, uh, it's not uh, a piece of information getting delivered from one place to the other place, but rather a process of active dynamic adaptation to the stimulants. Can we, can we go back and talk about this in terms of consciousness, though? This is what I was trying to do, and Richard gave me a hard time about. Yeah, but we don't want to talk about consciousness, because if, if you anything like the story I told, then you get, it's just a the simple claim is that the actual encoding in the cortex at any given moment is less than what is being globally broadcast at any given moment. Uh, and that is a reasonable claim to me. That seems to be what the data suggests, isn't it? But if you, wait a minute, if you don't bring, if you don't bring consciousness into it, then Ned Block doesn't disagree with anybody. There's a... There's a no, he does. What's, what, what is he disagreeing about? What's the, what's the overflow controversy? State that without whether there's more that information that's globally broadcast than is accessed at any given moment. But that's just a non-controversial uh, description of the Spur the original Sperling result. No exactly. one disagrees that's with the Sperling result. That's why not controversial. That's my point. It's only it when you add all this other technical bullshit on top of it that no one cares about except uh, philosophers that the thing becomes controversial at all. But Ned He's cares playing. about phenomenal consciousness, right? And he thinks that there's... Well, that's why he shoots himself in the foot by setting it up in an overly philosophical way instead of just presenting his argument in terms of the empirical data which no one can reasonably disagree with. I mean, it's well, clearly, anyone who says that what's, what, what's, con, what con, what's, what's conscious is what's actually encoded, um, se it seems wrong. Wait a minute. Um, so now you are addressing the, the controversy. Yes, right. because we're talking about whether there's, more, uh, what, whether, whether there's more representations in the system than what the system can report about. Whether and whether it's conscious. That's right. So whether you call it, call that, you know, call the global broadcasting stuff phenomenal conscious. Call it whatever you want. Call it Doug. Let's call it phenomenal consciousness. Um, uh, call the the stuff which is actually encoded in the cortex access consciousness. Okay, so that's technical vocabulary, but the basic idea is just that what's broadcast is not what's accessed. Um, although it could be, it's accessible. It could be accessed. It's information that the system can can get to 
but it's not all got to at the same moment. And what the what the subject report is, what's actually encoded in the cortex, and that's less than what's available uh, to be encoded. And put in that way, there's no controversy, is there? But I mean, does anything in there sound controversial to you, Bernie? I don't think so, but um, I I no longer know what you mean by being accessed. Actually encoded in some region of cortex. Oh, but, I mean, but look, I mean, V1, everything, basically everything that hits the retina is is in V1. Right. The mere fact that the that the four uh, that um, the, the all all twelve letters are are in the in the fovea, right, is going to pretty much guarantee that it gets encoded in V1. Yes. Uh, but not right, right. But not in the usable form. Necessarily, I mean. Well, what uh, do you mean by usable? Reportable? There's, of um, course, there's this. No, it, usable by the system. Report. I mean, we're talking about the global broadcast here. So, report, report is what gets get actually accessed. What you report is what's accessed, or at least that's. Okay, let's let's use the word reportable then instead of accessible. Right. So something is reportable um, versus something is reported. More letters. What's reportable is um, is it, there's more that's reportable than is actually reported in any given moment. Right. Yeah. So that's all right. that Ned wants to establish, I think, and then he wants to atta attach certain words to these different properties, like phenomenal consciousness, to what's reportable but not reported, and access consciousness to what's reported, um, and and you know that's technical vocabulary, but uh, what are you saying? Say again. So that's what he's saying. <laughs> it's, 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 that's all it's he's more saying. that's reportable than is reported. Right. I don't think that's a controversial claim. I think that's what the that's experimental right. data supports. <laughs> right, but then we don't need that block. We, we just had Sperling. Um, no, which, because there were, he, interp he interprets people as saying that what consciousness is is what's reported. That's right. You've got to bring consciousness into it for there to be a dialectic. No, no. Uh, why can't you just say that consciousness is that which is potentially reportable? We don't report everything. Exactly. That's what he does say, though. That's what phenomenal consciousness is to him, just what is re potentially reportable. But, but, dudes, then consciousness is in V1? Consciousness well, is in the right. We have to find out which... Con no, we have to find out which, con which part of the brain is such that it's potentially um, can be accessed or reportable and it might be V1, we don't know. I don't think there's any good evidence that V1 is accessible, um, although I'm not, I'm not the expert here. Bernie probably knows more about this than I do, so you can, I don't know if you want to say something about this. But. I have a hypothesis about that, uh, but uh, I just want to call your attention to this beautiful paper from the Logothetes uh, lab. Uh, the first author's name is unpronounceable, but it is Panagiotaropoulos. Uh, and That's I, believable. <laughs> uh, and he's very good. Uh, um, uh, I can send you the PDF. Uh, and he's, uh, they're, they're observing uh, what they believe to be actual encoding of the conscious visual input, not the unconscious visual input. This is a binocular rivalry paradigm. Yeah. And, uh, and that... Uh, uh, being uh, broadcast or being sent uh, in high fidelity uh, from uh, the medial temporal lobe um, to uh, prefrontal cortex. 
uh, in the monkey. So, uh, so this is uh, the most direct evidence we have to date of uh, highly accurate, uh, uh, widespread uh, uh, call it broadcasting. Uh, uh, I'm ha I'm happy to call it broadcasting for now. Uh, it could be narrow casting, but uh, right. but uh, we can figure that out later. I like the narrow casting idea, and I really like the you know there's some work by people like Edvard Moser and his group, which I, I think is really interesting, where they show like especially in the hippocampus um, that there are areas of the hippocampus that can tune in to different fast and slow theta rhythms. So you have the high, the fast theta rhythms, slower theta rhythms. And it's sort of you get this idea that it's switching back and forth, and it can, it's it's tuning in um, as needed to the various information on the various channels. Um, and so I, I think that that's that idea of narrow casting, uh, broadcasting. There's a lot of stuff that's going on there. Um, and uh, and broadcasting uh, could often precede narrow casting, because if you get a handshake back. Uh, from your target uh, processor, uh, then you might want to say, oh good, uh, let's keep talking, and where you don't get a handshake back, you don't keep talking. So so you could use broadcasting to uh, alert a whole bunch of systems, uh, half of them might say no, uh, and they go on doing their own internal problems. <laughs> Well, we need to we need to wrap it up. Thank you, Bernie. This has been a fantastic conversation. It's always great to talk with you. Yeah, that was that was really terrific. Thank you very much, Bernie. Okay, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, after this is edited and uh, published as a, a podcast, we, we will have a uh, a set of links that people can see at the blog. Uh, and this is all accessible and accessed. Spacetimemind.com. <laughs> Spacetimemind.com. Okay, Frankie is very into that idea. Said, yeah, Frankie yeah. is calling it. Thank you for listening to Spacetime Mind. For more info about today's episode, as well as info about our video series and other supplements, check out our website at spacetimemind.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your comments on Twitter at spacetimemind99 or on our blog at spacetimemind.com. And please rate us on iTunes to help spread the word. Until next time, this is Pete Mandick saying, You can't defeat the haunted clown. People see what's on the screen. They're in commune with the haunted clown.
fool was standing around the block just to see him. <laughs> wow. All right. Let's turn to the planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> that was so worth it.